Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new episode of the 1099. As always, I am your host, Joseph Noop, and thank you for joining us today. I'm really glad you're here. And today, I'm really glad to have on Richard Rouse, a director, designer, and writer on The Church in the Darkness, out now on PS4, PC, Xbox One, and Switch. Rich, how are you doing today? The game released, I think, less than, uh, well, a little over a week ago now. Uh, and you were mentioning a patch, so I'm sure you're in that post-release state that most developers uh, usually get into once they ship something, right? Yeah, absolutely. Where you're, you have before you ship, you have a list of a hundred things you'd like to do, and then after you ship, you realize which ones are most important because <laughs> that's what everybody tells you. So that's what I've jumped on as much as I can while dealing with sort of post-ship, you know, media and stuff like that. So. Well, it's funny we're talking here today. I I do PC gamers like, oh, every game coming to uh, uh, PC in 2018, 19, what have you. And uh, I, I, Church in the Darkness was one of those early ones I think I was able to find. And it was like, okay, this is is a really unique concept uh, where you play a character who... uh, is informed by one of their family members that like, Hey, what your brother has been, uh, it seems abducted by a cult or, or recruited into a cult and they've, you know, LARPed off to uh, South America and you need to go and find them a, a very kind of classical, uh, infiltrating a cult story. But I was interested to find that you also worked on the suffering back in the day and, uh, yeah. and also on state of decay. Uh, so what, the suffering is it, it, it. I remember like reading EGM, I think, uh, back then and seeing some of the screenshots. The suffering was like a really kind of gothic horror, uh, very brutal looking game. How did you get from the suffering to now with the church in the darkness? Yeah, um, there's overlap there, but not the most obvious overlap, probably. The suffering was you know, a straight ahead, we call it an American horror game, you know, to contrast many of the most popular games at the time were Japanese. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was a shooter at its core, sort of. Like, it wasn't a survival horror so much as an action horror game. And that was all great, and that was, you know, built in a AAA sort of mind, mind space, right, of working with a pretty big budget for the time, um, not that big a budget anymore, uh, but and it wasn't the biggest AAA game being made, but it was being made, you know, in a AAA fashion uh, by a studio. So there was a desire for it to sell, you know, X many copies uh, from day one, right? So when you're doing that, you obviously have to it just it changes everything uh, how you make a game um, in terms of just thinking. You know, well, are you know what types of fans are there out there? How can we cast a wide enough net to catch a bunch of them in it? And then, you know, added on to that, what made it unique, I thought, was tapping into sort of real world horror stuff. So, you know, it's set inside a prison, um, and it deals with some prison issues. And then on this island, there was a slave ship that wrecked in the um, 19th century. And then there was a, an, a, an insane asylum on the island where all sorts of atrocities happened. So it was sort of this catalog of atrocities, but all based on real world events. Um, so it wasn't so much just straight up supernatural horror, but real world horror that then manifested itself as supernatural horror. So 
if you look at then the overlap of something like the Church in the Darkness, the Church in the Darkness is still real world horrors, but mm -hmm. you wouldn't maybe call it a horror game, right? Because it doesn't present like a horror game in the traditional, in that traditional blood and gore and monsters sort of sense. Um, also, the camera angle and that sort of stuff changes things too. So there's, I've, I've, the continuity is is that part that it's fascinated with real world sort of dark subjects. But then also, if, I don't know if you remember, but the suffering had a narrative that changed based on how mm -hmm. you played it. So you actually would make choices during the game about whether you help people or didn't help people. And um, this would add up to three different endings you could get. And the endings also changed the backstory, like whether your character was guilty of the crime they'd been accused of or not, based on how you played the game in the present. It changed the past as well. Um, obviously, that was a much simpler thing than what the Church of the Darkness is endeavoring to do with the sort of sort of, sort of dynamic storytelling stuff we're doing. Um, but those are sort of the two connective things, right? It's like that real world subject plus different ways to tell stories in games. And I, uh, I got to imagine that in the time that The Suffering was made, the reality of being a smaller indie studio has also changed dramatically. Um, uh, you say you worked on State of Decay, which uh, I know was like, was it uh, what the second one was Microsoft, I know. Uh, but I think the first game was still made by a fairly sizable uh, studio. Yeah. So, so yeah, State of Decay, the first one was made by Undead Labs, but published by Undead Microsoft. Labs. So it was always published by Microsoft. And then they made the second game, which, yes, was bigger, bigger team, all of that. And then were acquired shortly after State of Decay 2 ships. Mm hmm. And so, yeah, what what made you want to uh, your new company is Paranoid Productions, right? And uh, what made you want to dive into that? Yeah, I mean, I, I really liked working on The Suffering and other games I worked on and then State of Decay and State of Decay. I was at Microsoft, so I was sort of the publishing designer working with the team at Undead Labs and sort of giving them high level feedback and playing their builds a lot and and trying to tune the experience and then also communicating that to marketing and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, working on those projects were really cool. Uh, but at the same time, I started out actually 20 years ago making very small games, um, what would be called indie games, but were not called indie games at the time. And there's something fun about doing it all yourself for good and for bad. You know, it's a ton of work <laughs> and certainly making a game now is way more work than it was 20 years ago, um, making something that's even vaguely competitive. Um, so it was a very different, like doing this game was very different than the first quote unquote indie games I made. But there's something of that appeal of like, I just want to do one that's all my choices for once, you know, or or not mm -hmm. not every choice is mine, but, but a lot of them. Um, and there's just something, you know, once you've done that once, you kind of want to do it again sometimes. So having worked at, uh, on on big projects at AAA places like Microsoft or Ubisoft or wherever, it, the thought of like going out to just a really small team again was too appealing for me to to pass up. And then also knowing, you know, when you're making those giant projects, there's a lot of concern about upsetting people or you know getting too, you know, into one subject matter or the other that you you kind of end up having to avoid, even though you're not being censored, you're sort of self censoring. Um, and making an indie game, you can kind of just go for it a lot more. I, uh, I, I live with someone who works for a uh, fairly large company, and uh, they themselves came from a smaller, you know, more, I, I would say, indie 
uh, and it has been interesting to see the difference in the way they approach, you know, being on, on Twitter or uh, uh, tackling individual projects and whatnot. Uh, but I'm glad that, yeah, you guys, you kind of rediscovered that uh, that allure of freedom uh, and that it worked out well for you. And I Church in the Darkness is kind of it is kind of one of those games you could only envision as a sort of uh, personal, very, very personalized project, uh, a, a top down, almost roguelike ish game where you are infiltrating a cult in South America and it's not, you know, uh, there are guns, but it's not a first person shooter, et cetera, et cetera. Not, not so I will. Yeah, not not at all. And uh, I really wanted to dive into a lot of the cool historical context and perhaps how that uh, influenced the way you approached building this game and building the story around it. And I want to start off with what was your what is your favorite popular cult? Uh, There's like, you know, Manson cult. There's Heaven's Gate. Uh, Jim Jones. Jonestown is the one that moved to Guyana after like 25 years in the U.S. And uh, I got to, you know, reread a lot about these prepping for this interview and just like, damn, there's a lot of cool shit going on. Uh, a lot of weird stuff going on, uh, in these cults. What, what influenced you, uh, when you looked at all these kinds of stories? Yeah, it was definitely subject matter that fit into that sort of dark things that humans do to each other that I get fascinated by. Um, but when, as I started looking at cults more and more, cause often when you see them from the outside or from the rest of society or from mainstream society, you see them as just a bunch of crazy people. It's like these people are lunatics or they're brainwashed or whatever. But often when you dig into it more, you realize, oh, I kind of see why someone would go for this at first, at least. Right. You see like what that initial appeal is, um, of this, you know this group that is often formed out of people who are just don't fit into society or are really dissatisfied with society vulnerable or have their own personal issues and need someone who can help them out, you know, help them get off of drugs or help them just find self-awareness, whatever it is. And so these groups provide almost in, in almost all cases provide a really strong benefit to people on some level. And that's not something you think of. So as I was looking at cults, you know, just sort of fascinated at them before this game ever came along, just seeing that like, well, when you're in it, it doesn't seem like a cult and you don't join a cult. You join a religion or you join a progressive movement or you join, um, you know, a self-help organization, whatever it is. And you think you're doing the right thing. And maybe by the time things get dark or go bad, which they do sometimes and don't sometimes, uh, by the time that happens, it's too late because you're so inside of it, you can't see the problems. And that just sort of fascinated me. What uh, what was your favorite kind of cult? Oh, to, right. That to was your original about? question, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> I asked 14. It's a bad habit of mine, so don't feel bad. <laughs> I, I dodged it. No, I don't know that I have a real favorite per se. Um, the you know They're just each interesting in their own way. It's not like having... I mean, I have trouble naming a favorite movie too, or something, which is a much easier question. <laughs> um, but or like, what's your favorite war or something like that? People have that. Like, people right, can answer right. that question, but I'm not one of them. Um, so, you know, like the, the ones you mentioned are fascinating. Obviously the game borrows um, sort of architecture and, and location from Jonestown. Um, 
and and some of the politics. But then I was just fascinated with sort of the decade of the 70s being this age when a lot of different cults came up. Um, and we didn't really have the concept of cults as a bad thing or even as a term that was widely used then. And then all these people, you know, who'd been involved in the counterculture of the 60 and 60s ended up splintering off into different groups that would had their own ideology and were trying to do something very different. It was only when the tragedy of Jonestown or other tragedies um, coming out of cult groups happened that people started saying, oh, cult's bad. And then that, that became very you know, if you joined one of these groups, you were seen as crazy and your parents would try to have an intervention for you or whatever. Um, that sort of started coming in the 80s. The uh, And then that, that's another one of my questions is the, the, the game is set in, I think, like 1967. Uh, it's actually 1977. 77. Okay. You know what? I, I double checked that earlier today because I wasn't sure. And uh, I swear to goodness, I saw 67 somewhere. Maybe it was like an article that someone got wrong. So I will <laughs> make no sure to correct that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, to me, seeing the game set in 77, um, I was, I was surprised to hear that. I guess we'll, we'll start with the, the game being this sort of, uh, uh, randomized uh, story that you can go through multiple times. Um, the, 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 there are different kinds of cult personalities that you can encounter through the game from the two uh, primary antagonists, uh, Rebecca and Isaac. Uh, and sometimes they're like heavily religious. Sometimes they're more of like a political uh, kind of cult. Uh, and how, how did you decide what kinds of archetypes to, to include? What were the kind of big, broad archetypes of cults, be it American or otherwise, that you felt were like, these really capture uh, uh, the hot button styles of cults in that decade. Yeah. Um, the As you research these cults, you find there are a lot of similarities, even if there's a lot of surface differences, you know, in terms of how they have usually one very charismatic leader, you know, and that usually there's a... Um, you know, sort of, we've all got to work insanely hard for some reason, which leads to everyone being exhausted, which leads to them being more easily exploited and, and manipulated. Um, you know, there's usually a, we're right and everyone else is wrong. It's very strong. And if your family doesn't let you do this, then they're the bad people. We're not the bad people. And they're sort of replacing your family in a lot of ways. And that just makes it harder and harder to leave. Um, and I think some of these groups, it's not even that they're consciously trying to do this it's, it's they believe so fervently in what they believe in that that they just think well of course everyone else is wrong and of course you shouldn't even talk to them anymore because they're so evil that we had to leave them and do this dramatic thing that we've done whatever it is um and then you know in terms of the archetypes i will say just to clarify a little bit the the politics of the cult are always the same and the um they're sort of like why they did what they did is the same and what changes is like are they going too far with it? Are they going mm -hmm. to a really apocalyptic and dark place or are they really just fervent in their beliefs and they're not going to hurt themselves or hurt anyone else if you leave them alone? Um, though they're always militant and well-armed, so as you're coming into the camp, they'll always shoot at you. Um, but it was looking at the architects. You mentioned the archetypes of, of the group. Like Those are sort of the operating principles of the leadership often. And then, you know, I was just attracted to a group that was Christians. I was raised Catholic and um, was very up on that. And I have a lot of family members who were 
uh, very Christian, but also very politically progressive, not unlike this group. Um, and then, you know, that, and then also looking at the individual members of the cult that you meet uh, in different games, that they are, you know, each have their own reasons for joining, that all, when you listen to them talk about them, seem very reasonable. I mean, that was the goal anyway. Uh, mm -hmm. Every player will disagree what's reasonable and what's not. But these people all had their, their reasons for being there that don't sound crazy when you actually sit down and talk to them. Um, and that was important to just make a group that, my goal with the group was really to make them as sympathetic as possible so that when something bad does start happening, it's, it's more of a, you feel conflicted about it as, as the person investigating. And, you know, I, I managed to, yeah, I would meet a, a sympathetic character who, like by the riverside or, or kind of away from the, the main uh, footpaths. And they would give me a little bit of insight into like, it was, it was interesting to talk to them and they were still very dedicated to the cult but uh you had the, both of the characters that i met were also like eh, i could see how this could be perverted you know into something uh uh terrible um i don't agree with everything here but i've like invested myself in this and you're gonna have to really work to convince me that i should you know move away from it in any way um and so I was surprised to hear, I, I was, it's interesting to say, to hear that the politics don't really change too much. It's, it's how far they go with them because I was surprised to hear uh, a lot of, yeah, like left leaning rhetoric, generally like liberal rhetoric in my playthroughs. Uh, they're talking about um, uh, police brutality and uh, uh, kind of anti-capitalism and, everything like that. I, I would generally describe myself as like a really liberal person. So hearing that kind of coming out of Rebecca and Isaac's mouth and also some of the characters, um, what one woman of color, you know, talking about like the, the uh, black community back in America is treated like shit. Uh, it was interesting to see those characters reframed through a, uh, the context of a cult. So yeah, tell me more about like, what was the writing process like for that for, um, I feel like people might have a bit of a preconception about cults being more right-leaning or more heavily religious than they are like leftist or liberal. Yeah, I guess it's complicated in that I think you could just find every type of belief system has been turned into a cult at some point that, you know, yeah, you might think, oh, they're just a bunch of like, more conservative, say, Christian folks that are so conservative that they splinter off, you know, from the mainstream church in their area or whatever. Um, and you might think of that as more common, but there's just as many that are, I think, I mean, I don't, it's not like I have statistics on this, but yeah. my feeling is that there are, particularly in that era of the 70s, a lot of these groups that we might think of as extreme uh, progressives who went and did something crazy. You know, a lot of them were more left-leaning because the country was sort of reacting to, you know, the, the Vietnam War and the threat of nuclear annihilation and, and sort of the, the, a lot of the resistance, particularly from young people um, that formed a lot of these groups were coming from, you know, the more left side of the, of the spectrum. And, you know, I, the goal again with, with crafting these characters was to have them be bringing up very legitimate complaints because a lot of times, cults you know 
the the stereotype of a cult is they're just crazy, as I was saying before. But often they have this foundation of they say a lot of stuff that you're like, yeah, I think that too. Yeah, okay, and that's how you get led into the thing in the first place. So having them, and I, I didn't think of it as like left or right, but having them complain about facts of what the U.S. government has done that they found objectionable, um, like the Vietnam War, like the persecution of minorities, or um, whatever it is having those things be real things like i got a real point here it's not just you know um crazy rantings about lizard people or something (laughs) um so so it's like that that was very much intentional and just trying to and i guess you know as i said a lot of my family member you know family members being christian and and also being on that side of the spectrum um it was just something that came naturally to to those sort of so that sort of writing for me anyway, as drawing from my own experiences. The the game literally, of course, being called The Church in the Darkness. Um, it, it's interesting to see how far the game goes with uh, a, a religious aspect to it. Um, and seeing characters like the, the African-American woman that I met like on the riverbank who was like offering to help me in exchange for proof that like the cult was actually you know, getting dangerous or something. Uh, it, it was curious to me to see still an emphasis on Christianity uh, in that community uh, because, you know, of course, Christianity has done a, a lot of good for various societies, American or otherwise, but it has also a, a huge history of uh, oppressing marginalized communities. That's that's just inescapable. Uh, so what did it look like when you were um, kind of mixing those two elements of like the very real fact of, you know, oppression of minorities in America, but also like kind of, I suppose, centralizing a community around the church as they are in this game. Yeah. The, I, I think you're, you know, I don't disagree that the church has a messy history, but I feel like it's more, you know, I think as you, as you said in the question, there's, there's instances mm-hmm. of good things coming out of it and then yeah. there's instances of bad things coming out of it. And, you know, so even looking at sort of the, the group is very socialist, right. In the game. Um, it's fun. If you go and Google like socialism in the Bible, you'll find two types of websites. <laughs> you'll find websites that are, that pull Bible quotes and are like, no, Jesus really was kind of socialist in what he was teaching. And, you know, that's really what he was telling us to do. And then that's one set of websites. And then the other side will be, no, 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 this is not what the Bible says at all. It's totally wrong. There's nothing socialist about Jesus, blah, blah, blah. And then they'll say their thing. And I'm not a Bible scholar, so I won't uh, claim to know, which is, you know, more supported by how many verses of scripture, right? But, you know, it's just that people can take this same text and then interpret it in such very different ways, right? Um, And that was sort of what was fascinating to me about taking this group that is still citing the Bible and still doing things, you know, that they feel are biblical, um, but then obviously doing it in a way that many mainstream Christians in the U.S. in the 70s would have said, well, that's crazy. What? No, that's going too far. Um, and then deciding, you know, you as a player deciding, do they, you know, act, are they actually going too far? Or are they living within the bounds of reasonable, you know, self-autonomy and, and uh, live, creating their own their own society? Um, you know, he does, there is reference to, to other churches that are getting it wrong in some of the dialogue they talk about. And he talks about how church is, you know, I can't remember where that quote is from. Maybe Martin Luther King about, you know, the most segregated place in America is the, the church yeah. pew on yeah. Sunday morning. 
um, just because you have such, you know, even if they're all Christians, you'll have the, the African-American church, you'll have the, the, you know, European church, uh, and all sorts of other variations, Latin American church. And, you know, everyone just goes with their own people, quote unquote, um, you know, on that Sunday morning. And this group is saying, no, we must stop this. We must live together to have a hope of elevating everyone up. Right. Which is, you know, a very noble sentiment. A lot of people would say. I, I was just going to say that, like, it was uh, on at least on my first time playing through it uh, when I hit the moment where I finally found like my little brother and he I think the first time through he was pretty like, no, this is actually like I feel really good here in this community. He wasn't begging to be let out or anything. Um, I liked that the game still allows you to figure out like, OK, are you leaving with him or are you going to leave yourself? Uh, or are you going to talk to Rebecca and Isaac and like, you know, uh, join or investigate further? And I like that it still wasn't clear cut, even as I was discovering um, the, the the positives and negatives of this particular incarnation of the of the cult. Um, <laughs> I think in that playthrough, I had uh, I, I found like four people in cages, and I'm like, this has clearly got to be a pretty bad place. But like, literally every character I talked to was like. Yeah, no, it's been like surprisingly peaceful and good here. Uh, so I was, I was kind of, I, I had mixed feelings as I found the brother. I'm like, well, damn it, now I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we give you the option too that, you know, uh, in case some of the listeners who are playing haven't figured it out, you can also choose to knock your brother out, you know, to subdue him and then carry him out against his will. Right, is something that the game supports as well. Um, if you decided he's he wants to stay, but he's crazy, he's coming with me. So. And that was really just letting, you know, it's important to me to just let the player use the core game systems of, you know, infiltration and, and lethal versus non-lethal approaches. Like let those choices then inform, you know, the many endings you can decide to do from there. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Rebecca and Isaac as characters. Um, this this married couple who run Freedom Town. Uh playing the game the further along you get you really learn from some of the the more sympathetic characters that like hey uh, uh isaac is like the spiritual guy he's the one who really believes in the more spiritual uh righteousness of what they're doing and rebecca is more the like nitty-gritty i'm going to do this because this is a politically motivated thing for me um and on the like off chance that you get to interact with them, I got caught a couple of times and I could kind of tell the differences in their personalities. Uh, uh, yeah, you could see Rebecca was much more like down to brass tacks in business. And Isaac, it felt like was more like, hey, what, why can't you see the light in what we're doing and why it's good? Uh, what was the writing process like that? Especially at, since there are two of these figures as opposed to like one monolithic you know, figure as as some cults like Manson cults uh, had. Yeah, it's definitely much more common for cult groups to have a single leader, um, even though they often have, you know, lieutenants and yeah. right hand people who do all this work because can't do it all yourself once the group gets to a certain size. Um, for me, just making them a couple was the idea that, you know, you're going to be running. I do from the beginning. I want to do the, the public address system mechanic where you're listening to their dogma while you're infiltrating and the thought of listening to one voice the whole time 
felt more <laughs> fatiguing potentially than having two voices that would alternate. And I thought that was fun. And there's certainly, you know, if you look at churches today, there are certainly lots of them that are run by a, a couple um, husband and wife team or something like that. So that was just an idea that I thought to bring back. And you brought up like earlier on, you brought up Heaven's Gate. Um, that was another interesting one that was run by a husband and uh, well, I don't think they were married, uh, but a man and woman. And um, like, I think she was originally, she was the person who was the driver originally. And then she got sick and died. And then the guy, you know, from the Heaven's Gate video was the person who took over from her. Um, and there's a great podcast about Heaven's Gate that I recommend to everybody. It's just called Heaven's Gate. It's a 10, 10 issues or 10, 10 episode documentary style podcast that's goes into all the depth of that group that you never knew about. But um, in terms of like the, the writing was just like, Hey, I want to vary this up. So you hear more characters. And then obviously once you have the two characters, you don't want them to be exactly the same because that's kind of boring. And usually in these good partnerships in any enterprise, there's, you know, different people have different roles and having one person who's the very charismatic speaker who can convince people of everything. And then the other person who's the doer who can figure out the logistics and the details. I mean, that was definitely intentional. Um, and I was only later in the project that I realized that the, uh, Rebecca is actually based off of someone I know. Like I had done that subconsciously uh, the whole time. Oh, really? <laughs> um, I won't say who, so I don't embarrass them, but, uh, uh, you know, she kind of came out of, of someone I know very well. Um, and then he was a little more pieced together from different, you know, I, you know, some priests I've known, um, but also just to sort of historical figures and stuff like that, but still trying to make it original um, and unique for them. And then having in the different scenarios, you hear the two sides of them not getting along always or them disagreeing about what to do with something. And sometimes they'll argue over the PA system and um, just trying to get that, again, sort of interest and variety to to hearing what's going on with them. I think uh, I think it's written well because, yeah, it, it makes more sense that if there is a couple or any sort of pair uh, running an operation like that, uh, yeah, one person, just like in a relationship, is really good at these kinds of responsibilities and the other person might fill these gaps over here. And... Uh, I feel like in other games or other movies, perhaps you see if there are like multiple leaders or lieutenants of a, of a cult community, um, they'll be a little too similar perhaps. And then maybe like one person sees the light and kind of, you know, uh, betrays or, or works against or, or snaps or something. Uh, so seeing, seeing that, yeah. Bouncing off of each other. It also helped that like, they essentially are the face and like the character of the game because we're, we're so focused on the cult, right? Uh, the, the player mm -hmm. character is literally a blank slate. You can choose their gender and skin color, and, you know, appreciate that. But um, tell me, tell me too about Ellen McLean and John Patrick Lowry are the voice actors uh, voicing Rebecca and Isaac. Um, and they themselves, was, Ellen was GLaDOS from Portal, and John is known uh, really well for being Sniper in Team Fortress 2. And I believe they both did like a couple of like Dota voices, uh, but they're married in real life. And they're, they're almost like, it's almost impossible to interview one of them without like seeing the other in the background or something. Uh, <laughs> tell me what, it, what was it like? Did it just feel natural working with a married couple doing a project like that? Yeah, I mean, I had known John from The Suffering, where he played a number of characters in both games and had just really liked working with him. And he was 
you know, that was sort of my first professional voiceover. I had done some voiceover work uh, with actors before, but this was at a maybe at a higher level in terms of John's very experienced at doing voiceover and just acting in general. And I always knew, you know, I knew his style. So he was actually one of the first people I talked to about this, doing this game, like whether I was going to do this game or not, kind of hinged on asking him, did he want to play one of the cult leaders? Um, and he was very into it. And I had then had the idea of, oh, hey, I don't want to just have one cult leader. It would be good to have two. Who's a great female actor who could, you know, pull off a, a yin yang to this other cult leader? Oh, hey, aren't you married to one? <laughs> um, and I hadn't met her before that, but she was, you know, obviously I knew her work really well and knew she was very talented. So getting her seemed like a fit. And then I just enjoyed as a writer writing really to them. Um, so from the very beginning, when we met up and talked about the characters, that was before anything was really written down. And then I wrote it with them in mind the whole time, which is not that which happens all the time in film um, where a part is really tailored to a specific actor, but happens a lot less in games, it feels like. And that was just a great thing to try to do. And then, you know, despite them being, you know, famous and everything, uh, they're just so down to earth and easy to work with. And we would have rehearsals with the three of us and it was easy because they would just show up in one car and go off and discuss it some more when they got home and then send me an email with some feedback later or whatever. Um, so yeah, overall great experience. What, uh, what is it like writing for uh, a particular actor in a game? Um, uh, what, what kinds of things are you changing or uh, reshaping in the overall story that you want to tell? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, you know, so much of writing something that's going to be acted is reading it out loud yourself because something that looks great on the page might not sound good when read. And then the another layer to that is might not sound good when read by the wrong actor, right? Because, you know, much as actors are versatile and uh, John could read the phone book and make it interesting and Alan could sing the phone book. Um, just knowing like, what would they, how would they do this line? So that as I was working on it, I could just imagine what they would say. And I remember they did, John wrote a book called Dancing with Eternity. That's a science fiction epic uh, that I recommend. It's very enjoyable if you're into that sort of thing. And they did an audiobook version of it where he plays, he does the main passages plus the male characters. And then she does all the female characters. Um, and I just listened to that whole book while I was sort of getting into the mood of this. It's a pretty long audiobook too. Uh, it's, you know, more than 13 hours or something like that. Uh, maybe much more. I can't remember. Big, a big number. Um, but it was just like thinking, I'm trying to get something out of this line. I don't want to know what it is. You can kind of go back to like listen to something they've done elsewhere for reference. Or if you're doing, you know, we did several sessions for the games. So we did one years and years ago and then we did one more recently and by the time i was doing the second one it was so easy to just go back and listen to some of their other lines and that just gets my mind right into the groove of like what's something this character is going to say really well um so i just enjoyed that immensely and so they they also wrote several songs there's like 11 songs or something i read in the game uh being played over the loudspeakers and uh, I, I can tell you, I'm going to have the one that's like work all day, work all day, do, 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 do. I'm going to have that one in my head for a week. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but what, what was it? They wrote their own songs for this. And, uh, I watched a video 
I think like Polygon must have done or something um, mm -hmm. where John was uh, singing with Ellen and while he was playing a guitar. Uh, what do you think that something like that adds to an experience when you, you've got like your actors actually taking it upon themselves to uh, uh, leave an artistic imprint on the world that isn't just something handed to them in a script? Yeah, no, I had known obviously of Ellen singing from the Portal games. And John had done a new portal song for something like the anniversary of the game coming out. I can't remember what the reason was, but um, he had done an original new portal song that he had performed and she had sung and sort of with Val's blessing. And I had seen them do that. So I'm like, oh, this guy can really write like real songs. <laughs> uh, and that was great. And then the other fun thing about them specifically was they're a bit older than me. So John was actually a hippie, you know, lived on communes a little bit in the seventies and stuff. Um, so just knew that era super well and knew the types of songs that would fit into that era. So I came to him with the idea of, wouldn't it be cool? You know, the portal games are known for these songs at the end. And I love lots of movies that end with that perfect song. So wouldn't it be cool to have a song at the end of this? And wouldn't it be cool to have multiple songs depending on which ending you got? Um, so it felt like when you get to the end, you're unlocking these additional tracks, basically. Um, and I just like that idea a lot. And John was immediately into it. And I thought originally, oh, he'll have he'll write a song and then I'll come up with the lyrics or we'll work together on the lyrics or whatever. But he wrote a song and just wrote. And this was after we'd done voice sessions already. And they were very familiar with the characters in the world. Um, and he just wrote this song completely. And then I said. Uh, that's perfect <laughs> let's ship it and he wrote it and it sounded like that time period and it sounded like you know it was written in a way that could evoke the themes of the game really nicely and then he deliberately wrote you know other songs that sounded very different from that to capture you know different aspects of that time period that could still be performed by plausibly be performed by these two preachers uh with you know one instrument accompanying them but he just jumped from style to style. And so then you end up getting something like the working song uh, that you heard in game. Right. Uh, that, then that's just fascinating to hear. Cause like you can, <laughs> you can really feel a lot of their, they must, they must be married for like at least two or three decades at this point, I'm sure. Um, and they've clearly uh, developed their own uh, relationship quirks. Right. And they know each other very well, I'm sure. And you can, you can feel a lot of that, emanating from the conversations they might have in the game or, or some of the other kinds of writing. But uh, I guess let, let's jump a little into some of the more gameplay design too, because I saying it out loud, a, a roguelike, you know, uh, cult infiltration game, top down stealth uh, uh, meant to be played over and over uh, at least a couple of times is really peculiar. And it's not something that I feel like I, I would have ever have come up with on my own. Um, designing it as a sort of roguelike with multiple runs, what was important about framing this cult and this world in this way where you, it was meant to be uh, explored multiple times? I mean, I've been fascinated for a long time with games that not only let you, the player, choose you know, what you're going to do in given situations, but also are just changing the actual story of the game. And you can go all the way back to like the board game Clue as a very simple example of that right where it's not always the same person who did the murder because that's how it's a replayable board game right mm -hmm. um 
And obviously it's, you're creating a lot of the narrative yourself when you're playing that. It's not like Mr. Mustard is a well-defined character in the, in the game, though he kind of is because he's got a color and he looks a certain way, depending on which edition of the game you got, but you're kind of putting the pieces together. But I just like the idea of, and it's not a conventional one and certainly one that would be hard to sell at a big uh, studio, but the idea of a story you can play multiple times, not just because you're making different choices, but because the underlining underlying nature of the basis of the story changes so much that you want to make different choices the next time you play. Um, Cause so often in games you'll have, you know, in a Bioshock or something like that, you or Mass Effect, the first time you play through the game, you're sort of making the choices you want, want to make as a player mm-hmm. instinctively. And then the second time you play it, you're doing the opposite of what you want to do, uh, which is less fun because <laughs> you just because you want to go see the rest of the content. Um, so I just like the idea of what if you get to make different choices the second time because the actual context has changed. So that was sort of the driving motivation behind it. And then in terms of making it work, it was, you know, I may have thought about it too much in t- even, but just trying to make it so things would change about them, but nothing so obvious that it would give it away instantly. Um, at least not at the beginning of the game. So you'd have to be fairly far into the game until you saw the really obvious difference. Not saying that like, um, Oh, th- this is the evil run or this is the good run. Right. It's like you don't enter in one time. There's like a, a hell pit with fire in it, and the <laughs> yeah. other times it's flowers, right? It's small you know, the, the differences yeah. are more subtle. And again, that was what was interesting to me about looking at the subject matter of cults was people will look at a tragedy that comes out of a cult, which are still in the minority of cults and in a tragedy of any kind. But um, they'll see an event like that happen. And why didn't someone stop this group, right? It was so obvious. Mm-hmm. Well, it's obvious in hindsight. You know, if we stopped every group that did this weird stuff, we'd have a lot of people in jail. Right. So it's like, well, if people want to go have their weird religious or political beliefs or whatever it is, they should be allowed to go do that if they're not hurting anybody, if they're not hurting themselves. But, you know, here, you know, ever so often some some horrible tragedy will come out of it. And that's a risk we run. And we can try to do better to try to anticipate those things and stop them. But it's hard to be perfect. And that was sort of the point of the game when you see those subtle differences between the groups they're not that far apart on the surface and trying to figure out is this really bad or not is hopefully what makes it interesting and you know we we talked a little bit before about um the way cults are sort of segmented into like different uh, uh groups you know there's a leader maybe there's some lieutenants and then there's people that are like we're going to keep you so busy that you don't have time to really think about a lot of the problems with the situation and I think I think that was communicated pretty well uh, in the fact that like there's three or four different styles of people that you can run into in the game um, with like different you know vision cones. There's the like yellowish uh, normal folks. Maybe they're like working in a field or like working in town, walking around, minding their own business. There's like a low tier security person with like the light red cone, and then like a high tier security person with a bright red cone who's the most eager to probably shoot you with a gun um, or at least, you know, stop you and and hold you up and put you in a cage. Uh, and, and it kind of feels like it might mirror other cults, yeah, who, who implement their own caste system to keep things orderly. Uh, was that what you were going for? Yeah, I think some of that makes sense in that, you know, usually in these groups, it's not everybody who has a gun, right? right. It's, it's some people do that. And then obviously they have bosses and, um, uh, 
you know, maybe there are different levels of, of paranoia depending on which level. So like those darker red characters who have the red hats, um, they'll be much quicker to judge you a threat than the, the blue hat guys with the um, softer red cones who will um, be slower to jump to conclusions about you. They come and investigate yeah. for a little bit longer. Um, and so that was definitely like made sense fictionally, but then also just, you know, in a game, you don't want every character to be exactly the same either. So it's cool as you're moving through like, oh, do I have to worry about that person? Oh, no, they're just a civilian. Uh, oh, do I have to worry? Well, blue guard, I can probably get by him before he catches on. Oh, red guard, I'll go the other way. You know, so you're you're also, you know, you're seeing them. They make sense fictionally, but then also just in terms of game. And, you know, I one of the things that I appreciate most is that um, even for as roguelike as the game may be, um, getting caught isn't necessarily uh, the end of that story. It might like advance you two chapters and you might like miss out on something. But uh, I, two or three times I got, yeah, uh, captured and put into a cage. And then one of the leaders, uh, usually I think it was like Rebecca, uh, would have a talk with me and and, you know, the standard video game thing of, uh, okay, now that I've talked to you and I've kind of accosted you, I'm going to go walk away now. Please don't break out. And the, the story gets to, <laughs> yeah. to, to continue on a bit. And to me, that kind of reminded me of, uh, there's a lot of you know pop culture films that deal with cults like Wicker Man or uh, one of my favorites recently is Gareth Evans' Apostle. Uh, really, he took the brilliant like editing style he did on the Raid action movies uh, and and turned it into this really high tension cult escape drama. Uh, and was that something that you were kind of influenced to just like, well, seeing a plan to invade, to infiltrate a cult kind of go awry? Yeah, I mean, the um, I still haven't seen The Apostles. It's really good. Several yeah. people have told me I need to see that. So I'm going to seek that out. Um, but yeah, I mean... To be honest, part of it just came from the nature of the core type of game I was trying to make, which was a top down infiltration game mm -hmm. like that was like the starting points of the game were cults, you know, and then top down infiltration and then replayable narrative. Those were sort of the three underpinnings from the very beginning. And, you know, if you're making an infiltration game, it's cool to and you're making one that you have to replay and that there's real tension about losing and having to start over. It is nice to have that breather where, Oh, if I get captured, it's not necessarily the end right away. I'll get a few shots at it. And then also another way to encourage you to play non-lethally because if they capture you and you've killed a lot of people, they may not let you live. Um, I don't know if you saw that in one of your scenarios, but that, that can happen too, where they don't let you. Break yeah. Them. I was definitely, I was definitely um, killed uh, once or twice. Yeah. <laughs> So it's just it was a cool way to like have a mechanic of extending the gameplay that also fit with the fiction. And then it's always great to have a your captured scene because you get to meet the the you know ultimate antagonist in the in person, right? Because you're, you know, subdued or tied up or in a cage or whatever it is. And it was just a great it was one of those ideas, it was actually suggested by one of the playtesters um very early on. And it was just one of those ideas that like ticked so many boxes, like narrative boxes, mechanic boxes, yeah. um, that you're just like, oh, I got to do this. Um, you know, if anything, I wish it was even a little more elaborate, but can't work on these games. No. <laughs> and, you know, uh, as we kind of like begin to wrap up here, 
Um, I, I would be very curious to know like what you think of either narratively or mechanically uh, the depictions of cults in other really popular games. Um, one of the more recent examples, of course, is Far Cry 5. Uh, and Ubisoft is going to Ubisoft. You know, they, they hemmed and hawed about the politics of uh, their, their group in that game. Um, but it was, it was interesting to see, the, to see them. Uh, they had their singular leader and they had like lieutenants, of course, and it did mirror a lot of uh, familiar tropes and whatnot. But uh, games like Far Cry or like Outlast 2, Dead Space, uh, Resident Evil and others, you know, what are they doing right and what are they doing wrong when it comes to uh, depicting both the reality and the, the scariness of uh, cult think? Yeah, the... Um... You know, there's, I haven't played Outlast 2, unfortunately. Um, you know, I am familiar with the Resident Evil 4 folks and um, the Far Cry 5 I played as well. I'm a fan of the Far Cry series. And, you know, we have those little alarm boxes in here that are very Far Cry-like. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, just to a few few of the things you brought up there, like, yeah, the Far Cry, I did not, uh, I, I liked Far Cry 5 fine. Um but it definitely like shied away from going and you could tell it's like, well, they're kind of Christian, but not really, nah, you know, it's they're just that like, church doesn't have a cross you know? on it anymore. And then, yeah. And then they kind of chickened out with the, well, we're all on drugs. Um, and that's really what's going on here. I think it's, I think a cult group where the people are genuinely there of their own, like at least they got in the door under their own motivations and wanting to be there is more terrifying than a group where it's like, oh, well, this drug thing happened and now we're all crazy zombies. And, you know, the FARC, the, the Resident Evil 4, they always felt like zombies to me too, you know, that, that they didn't feel like there were culty aspects to it, but it didn't feel like a real world cult, certainly. And that's fine. Like it's, I'm not saying every game needs to be real world. Um, I was kind of I liked the culty vibes of Bioshock 2. I don't know if you ever played that one, but it had a once and it kind of escaped me because I, I didn't go back to I played Bioshock 1 multiple times, I think. Right. But that has less of a that's more of like the crazed we're all on drugs and everything went wrong kind of right. vibe. And then yeah, Bioshock 2, you know, because they were on such a compressed schedule to make that game was sort of very, you know, similar to the first game in terms of setting and a lot of stuff. But I liked the Sophia Lamb, I think was her name, uh, mm. sort of cult leader that was sort of the opposite. She was like deliberately the opposite of, of the, was it Rand from the first game? Was that the? Yeah, the, Ayn Rand. Right, with the Ayn Rand and then can't remember what the main character's name or the main uh, villain's name was at this point. It's escaping me now yeah. too, yeah. And I love oh, well. that game. So. Andrew Ryan. Sorry, Andrew Ryan. Sorry to everyone. Uh, but yeah, I, I like that group. I think some of the groups in, in Fallout the fallout series have been cool cult e people too um you know the people who worship the bomb or whatever you know the sort of yeah. groups that arise out of high because you know a lot of cult groups take hold when society becomes too objectionable to people in different ways um whether that was like a lot of the cult groups in the 70s came out of everyone fearing nuclear annihilation because things seemed really tense and it was like well obviously this society isn't working and i'm too stressed out to even live here so i'm going to move to some really remote location where the nukes won't get us and live in this totally different way. Um, 
you know, that's, and you could say the same, obviously fallout's very different. Nukes have already fallen, but you know, people are doing stuff based on society having crumbled, um, in a similar way. So I like those groups as well. Um, but I guess, yeah, it's, it's when you take a cult member and just turn them into zombies or turn them into easy, you know, cannon fodder. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the, you know, and it, like I said, if it's just a fun game and you're not too worried about it, great, whatever. But if you're trying to make your story a little more deep and plausible, um, having them be just disposable people uh, is always a bummer. Did you ever play the Dead Space games or at least the first two? I, I only played, I think it's it's like you and Bioshock too. I, I played the first one for some mm-hmm. hours and I mostly remember the game mechanics and I don't remember the story very well at all. Well, yeah, so it, I think that one to me is a really interesting examination of a, a sci-fi uh, cult, you know, something a little more removed from history or, uh, you know, a, a specific religion. Um, they have, of course, the marker is like their kind of icon and that they're following. Um, and the unitologist is what they're they're called, right? And you begin to learn a lot about them in Dead Space 1, but it's Dead Space 2 where I was... I feel like they expanded it in a pretty meaningful way where Mm -hmm. as you're exploring the space station, rather than just a giant spaceship, uh, the space station where like, you know, thousands of people lived and shopped and live and did whatever they want. uh, There was like an office that you eventually have to go through. It's like, Hey, this is, this is the unitologist office. And then they turn like, after you go through that, you go through the unitologist church. So it's a bit like, Hey, here's the front foyer uh, office where like a sec a literal secretary will probably like meet you and give you a pamphlet about unitology uh and then here's our like big we're trying to impress you and make you feel small church um that of course at that point has been infested by the undead and all that jazz but uh i think that game did a really good job of of moving away from the first one where it was all like, you know, we're all cultists who like worship around candles and stuff to being like, no, these people like they have, they have a bank account. (laughs) They, Uh they, they exist in society and like, yeah, maybe people think they're weird, but they're not any, they don't come across any weirder than like maybe Mormons do to us not to, you know, slag on Mormons or anything specifically, but uh, yeah, particularly a good example in my opinion. I don't know if you had thoughts. Yeah, no, I mean, there's certainly, you know, I, I like cults that withdraw because as a video game designer, having a group that has completely pulled out of society is, makes something easier to build, <laughs> you know, because you can build this completely contained thing and not uh, while you're not building the entire city or something like that. But, yeah, certainly lots of modern day groups that we might call cults. Um and there's all types. Uh, a lot of them just, you know, they go back to their jobs during the week. And, um, you know, and a lot of these groups need money from somewhere. So they want you to go get a job and, and earn a lot of money to support the group. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's only the ones who are really successful who manage to pull away from society. But financial, financially successful, that is. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, definitely feels more authentic. I should I should check out Dead Space 2 for sure. Well, yeah, Richard, uh, you know, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to talk to me about this. I really appreciate getting kind of the historical background and just someone who yourself has to have had uh, dived into the world of, of cult think and to really get an appreciation for designing a game like this and 
and I appreciate you uh, giving me that window. But uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, you're you're in kind of in the middle of a patch process and working out some uh, problems with the game. Uh, fairly standard stuff, I imagine, for anyone who's released a game that's only like a week or two old. But um, uh, what what do you feel after the patching? Uh, what do you feel is next for you as a developer? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. All I can see right now is the game. I'm still super close to it. Um, yeah, and just getting this so that these obvious problems that we didn't fix before that are obvious now, they weren't obvious before, uh, get fixed is really my total focus. I do get to go on a little um trip to there's a conference in poland i'm speaking at this fall so i'm looking forward to that Uh, it'll be a little bit of a vacation but also working um but yeah next game don't know right now might be might be more like you know i mean i guess the one thing i'd say is this game is very experimental and different and Mm -hmm. you know i think challenges the user um I think, you know, the next game, I wouldn't mind it being less experimental because, you know, it's like any musician or something like that. You go do the weird album and then you go back to, you know, what you're known for. So you know, that might be something I would think about for my next project. Or you get that sophomore album. That's just a banger because you uh, you worked out everything on the freshman album uh, yeah. <laughs> or the sophomore album that you you have to record in six months. And the first album you recorded over exactly. three years, yeah. and it's all bad. And then you're like, wait, <laughs> what are we doing? Um, what are we so, doing? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where this fits into my line lineage, but it was definitely um, I definitely want people to check it out, but it's definitely a challenging game in terms of difficulty and what it wants you to do in terms of exploring the story. Um, and I wouldn't mind doing something just a bit more conventional. I think it'll still have dynamic story elements and player choices and stuff like that, but maybe not quite as out there as this one. Well, Richard, thank you again so much. And uh, folks, every Monday you can find a new episode of the 1099 here on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify. Um, as I mentioned last week, uh, make sure to donate to IGN's uh, funding drive for the victims of uh, the Texas and Ohio shootings. And Richard, uh, best of luck with everything in the future, man. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was great talk to you.